what did they say? Third time's a charm? More like 30. Let's see if you can get it right this time. Hey, it's Sachet, and this is The Conscious Creator Show. Through exclusive interviews with authors, actors, entrepreneurs, musicians, other podcasters, and all kinds of creators, we'll explore how to make a life through your art without selling your soul. The creative side of business and the business side of being a creator, if you will. We've got a host of amazing partners like Brain.fm and other amazing companies. So head on over to creators.show, that's C-R-E-A-T-O-R-S dot show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and more. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello. Welcome to today's episode. Today's episode is with my good friend, Tessa Arias. So Tessa is the founder and creator of Handle the Heat, where they create trusted baking recipes and insights into the science of sweets. And if you want to actually check out their work, just just go to their Instagram. It's some some of the best produced content I've seen around baking. And Tessa has had a really interesting journey where she basically started out as a blogger and has now taken this to 100,000 plus fans on Facebook, 250,000 plus fan followers on Instagram, and just has an amazing following. And the, the coolest thing about this is she's done it all organically or mostly organically. She's also published a cookbook. So she just has this really interesting experience on being a creator, starting as a blogger, and then actually turning it into a real business. So in today's episode, Tessa and I talk about her experience just creating Handle the Heat, working with sponsors, working with partners, and really like how she's mastered that. And full disclosure, Tessa and I did work together a few years ago, and she was one of probably my favorite clients in the sense that she took everything I told her and then just ran with that. Some of the things that we cover in today's episode is how Tessa began as a hobby blogger with no expectations of making money until she was offered a book deal back in 2012. How she found that she really needed the emotional support of having a team of like-minded people around her. We also talk about how in, in, in our world right now, there's all of this stuff going around, going on around like six-figure businesses and seven-figure businesses and 10-figure businesses and how someone can actually have a six or seven-figure business, but hate their business and not feel fulfilled by their life. And, and really like that's a choice that you get to make about what sort of business you want to build. How bringing someone else into your business forces you to operate at a higher level. And her framework for hiring, which is something that we also covered with Catherine Lavery. Um, so Tessa talked about how basically one thing I really loved is when hiring, she said she, she suggests that you ask the person to tell a story about a time that they overcame a challenge and really ask their opinion about something trivial to see if they can make a commitment and not just be a yes person, which I really loved. We also talked about her, sort of like how she challenged herself to post something every quarter that is controversial or personal then that scares her and how really it actually brought her audience together instead of alienating people. Well, it did alienate people, but her her true fans, they they became stronger. And, and that's something I found is when 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 you start polarizing, that's actually when your fan base and your fans come closer together because now you're taking a stand. We talk about her experience with sponsored posts. And if you're an influencer or someone with an audience who is thinking about doing sponsorships and partnerships, we actually get really tactical because 
Tessa and I have, have had a lot of conversations around this. So we share some of the favorite things that have worked for both of us. We also talk about what's in the future for Tessa and she's currently working on a second book and is self-publishing it and her experience around that because a lot of people are now starting to self-publish and what you can learn from from her. And some of the key points that we talk about are really like it's just how it's so much, so much more important to build relationships, whether you're working with publishers or sponsors or partners or PR reps. One of my favorite quotes is when she talks about the biggest thing for her was realizing how she couldn't do it by herself and didn't want to do it by herself. Owning an online business can be really isolating and you're not in a room full of people unless you choose to be. So strategies on how you can build that core group of supporters around you if you're working by yourself. So we covered a lot of ground in this episode. Like I mentioned, Tessa and have Tessa and I have worked together. So just because of that, it's just it's a really great conversation. So hope you enjoy it. And as always, let us know what you think. All right, Tessa, welcome. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for doing this. We met, I think, three years ago at a mastermind at Todd Herman's mastermind. Mm-hmm. And I still remember sort of the way you described what you did. And you've had this journey of, as you described it, going from a hobby blogger to a real business. So take us back to that time and like when you described yourself as a hobby blogger, kind of like what, where were you at that point? Yeah. So I actually literally started as a hobby blogger in 2009. I started my website just for fun, just to have a creative outlet. I was in college and I never, ever thought I'd make money from it ever. And then fast forward to 2012, I got a book deal offer and had a few things kind of like go viral and started to see success and my income was increasing. And I kind of started to realize there was a potential there. So I actually left my previous job in 2013 and we met a couple years after that. And even then, even though I was making a living off of the website that I was running, I still didn't feel like it was a business. I felt like a lot of things kind of had just fallen into place and I had gotten lucky and it was like right place, right time situations. But I didn't feel like I had strategies or systems or a team in place that made it a real business. And that's exactly why I started going to masterminds and meeting other people who had online businesses. And what is it about that? Like that we feel that we're, even though we're doing all of these things, is it just like what we're hearing from other marketing stuff that like, (laughs) we feel that it's not a real business? I think it was a combination of things for me, at least at the time, it was like the explosion of the internet marketing world and all of the info marketers and and so much was being said about it that it kind of made me feel insecure. And like I needed to hear what people were saying and see how other people were doing things. But also I think I just knew I was leaving money on the table. I knew things could be done better. And I knew that I didn't have all of the expertise myself, that I would have to have resources and connections and ideas generated from other people and mentors and, you know, a team eventually put into place to help grow this. And before we dive into kind of like what you did tactically, what were some of the mindset shifts you had to make at that point? I mean, I think the first shift probably happened even before we met, which was just like reinvesting back into the business and trying to think more strategically, which even just shifting that, even if you're not doing it perfectly to begin with, which you won't, like just taking it to that next level in your mind, it opens you up to more ideas and possibilities and ways of doing things. 
So talk like walk us through that journey. It was kind of like just like even like the mindset shifts because I think that's probably the most important thing that people miss. I for me, I think it was realizing like I couldn't do it by myself, and I didn't want to do it all by myself because owning an online business can be really isolating. You're often working from home by yourself on the computer all day. You're not in a room full of people unless you choose to be. And so that was actually probably the biggest takeaway from the Todd Herman mastermind that we were in for me was meeting people like you. And I still to this day work with three of the other people that I met at that specific mastermind who have become like essential parts of my business. And I think it's because you get to a point where you just want to be around other people who have similar goals and values and have businesses and like get it and get you because as an entrepreneur, you're not going to be like all of your friends. You're not going to think about things the same way. And so having like that kind of like almost emotional support in a group of people who will support you practically, of course, and tactically and, and give you advice and feedback and you can hire them and work with them. But it's also more like feeling supported and feeling like you have the strength of other people behind you as opposed to going at it all alone. Like for me, that was really important to have that to add to my inner strength. Yeah, I think that that's a big shift I see happening online where before everyone was selling courses mm-hmm. and it's like you buy a course and you don't really go through it. And really what people want is community because they want that face-to-face interaction. Yes. And, and it doesn't have to be face-to-face all the time, but even just like having that deeper connection with people and being able to talk, like for me at least, being able to talk things out. If I have a problem as a instead of like trying to find a course that will find it, find this solution or like a video or whatever, or a guide or a book, it's so much more helpful to just chat things through because the other person could like not even give you any ideas, but it gives you the ideas because you kind of work it through and get organized in your own thoughts about something. So, so for people who are listening, like let's say they're, they're been doing this for one to two years and it's starting to go well. If they're looking for that kind of support, like where, what should they be doing? Surrounding yourself with like-minded people and people who are maybe a few paces ahead of you. It's one thing to know other entrepreneurs. It's another thing to know them where you respect what they've done and you admire the journey that they've taken and they're happy with their lives and their business and are transparent with you too. Because someone can talk all day long about how they have a six-figure or seven-figure business and hate their business and hate their life and resent it all. Or they could have a seven-figure business, but they also have seven figures in expenses. They don't have any profit. Like you really have no idea what's going on behind the scenes half the time. So I think it's finding people who have similar values to you, who are willing to be transparent, and who you can trust that you know their advice and what they have to say to you is sound. Yeah, let's actually talk about that. The the whole six and seven figure and the whole coaches and consultants thing that we're <laughs> seeing everywhere now. Yeah, yeah, yes. And I think it's starting to reach its maturity as people realize like, it's not all it's cracked up to be when someone claims to have this amazing business online and you kind of, the cracks start to show eventually if it's not really all that amazing. Mm-hmm. And as, so as you're seeing that, and obviously we're in Todd's Mastermind and other, other groups, like how did you figure out which ones to keep being in, which ones to like pick and, and kind of like, because that's a hard decision, right? Like who do you go to for support as mentors? It is hard. It's hard to choose one. And then it's hard to also not get distracted by like other shiny objects and other people 
they have a really great message um, to like kind of jump around to all these different courses and masterminds and groups and workshops. Like you could spend all of your money doing that and have nothing to show for at the end if you're not actually implementing anything. So I think that's key number one is finding groups or resources where you're actually getting help implementing and you're confident that you will actually put things into action. But also just knowing and, and finding people who respect that you know yourself and your business and your goals the best. And I think for all of us, we have the answers within us for at least those fundamental problems and challenges. And it's about finding mentors and groups of people who respect that you have the answer within you. It's just guiding you to find it. Yeah, that, that's actually one of the, the biggest sort of breakthroughs I had over the last year is realizing there's a one kind of coaches that are almost as like guides for you and advocates and they're on the sidelines cheering you on mm-hmm. and helping you. And then there's another kind that sort of become champions where they tell you like what your goal should be and they want you to be completely like them because they're coming from their own place of insecurity and, and they're just exactly. kind of like trying to turn you into them. Exactly. And it's all like ego and it's very dogmatic. And I think, you know, cause we've worked together in the past. I always appreciated that about you is that you t- take feedback. And I think that's a really key indicator if someone is more of a mentor and a guide versus just trying to create a bunch of mini me so that they look better <laughs> to the world mm-hmm. um, is if they're willing to take feedback and adapt and like take what you, your, what's working for you and use that moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. So, so kind of going back to the mindset shifts, the first one you made was reinvesting into the business. So what did that look like once you made that shift tactically or, or what did you do from that? The first main investment I made was hiring my first person and she wasn't full-time or an employee or anything, but it was the first person I hired that was beyond just like, you know, a one-off graphic designer on Fiverr or something. It was like, she was committed to my business. I gave her a certain amount of work every week. And that was probably four or five years ago now. And it was like the best decision I've ever made. To this day, she's still with me. She's an integral part of my business. Her responsibilities have grown. Like It's been incredible. And it's funny because people always ask me where I found her, how that came to be. I literally just posted on Instagram. Like, I did not have a perfect write-up. I did not have a perfect process for hiring. I kind of like figured it out as I went just to do it, like as opposed to getting crippled at the start. And it was incredible because I had all these great applicants and I interviewed a few in person and I almost didn't hire the person I ended up hiring because she was soft-spoken and a little bit shy and I'm more extroverted and I wasn't sure if that was going to match but it ends up being a perfect compliment. Like we are mere opposite mirror images of each other and our personalities and our skills. So where I'm not great at something, she excels at and vice versa. And like, that was the best decision I ever made for sure. And it also mentally, not only does hiring people and like growing your team, it's so scary and you're, you don't know if you can afford it and you don't know if you'll be able to do it. You know, like what if something happens and you can't pay their, their paycheck or their bill or their invoice anymore? It is scary, but at the same time, it forces you to shift to a higher level of operating because there's someone else suddenly involved, whether that's like worrying about being able to pay them or that your processes are clean and efficient enough that someone else can plug into it or that there's just someone else in the picture who wants success for the business just like you do. It really just shifts your mindset. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I think one thing that was really important that you said is you started from Instagram. Uh-huh. I think I've I've seen this as a pattern, which is a lot of people when they make their first hires, they think they have to go post on Indeed or mm. all these job boards. But your first few hires can actually come from your community because there are people who already get what you're doing and they're already bought into your message. Exactly. And they want success for you. And I also think it's really important. It depends on your your industry and who you're hiring for, obviously. But to find someone who wants to be in a support role and isn't using you as a stepping stone to build their own business or their own thing, because that's not what you're looking for. You're looking for someone who enjoys being in the support role as opposed to being like the star of the show or whatever. So, so how do you sort of hire for that or check for that? I think it's a personality thing, first of all. And then just asking, what are your goals? Where do you want to go? Where do you see yourself? All those cheesy job interview questions. But a question that I find really helpful um, is, first of all, like what was a challenge you overcame or when did you go the extra mile or something like that? Um, And if they don't have a specific story, then that's probably not a great sign. But you could also ask something really innocuous and it doesn't really matter what the answer is. Like, do you prefer chocolate or vanilla. You're just wanting them to make a commitment to something and to have an opinion and to be able to voice it to you because that's what you want in your team. You don't want people who are just yes people or have no thoughts or opinions on something. Like You want that kind of energy in someone who's working with you. That's fascinating. It's sort of like the M&M test that forget which band does where they just want to make sure that you're checking for details. Exactly. So, so hiring is, I think, a big thing for creators. Like a lot of creators will hold on to stuff longer than they should. I've certainly done that. What are other things you've learned about hiring that were surprising for you? So the first thing that pops into my mind goes to hiring for your team and also finding mentors or coaches or mastermind groups. It's how do you feel after you've left an interaction with that person? Do you feel energized? Do you feel excited? Do you feel better about yourself or do you feel like drained, stressed, frazzled, insecure, depending on what that energy looks like? I think, you know, obviously you want to gravitate towards how you feel best, but sometimes I feel we can martyr ourselves and think, oh, well, I'm feeling this way because, you know, they must have something that I don't and there must be something that I need to work on and coming at it from more of a negative perspective And I just feel like anytime that you are saying to yourself constantly, I should do this, I should listen to that person, I have to do this, like, no, half the time, it's not actually necessary. You just built up the story in your head about it. And the other half the time is just someone's just convinced you that you're not good enough without them. And that's not a good place to be in with anyone in your life. Yeah, I think the best example of this is, is I've seen this message online a lot, which is if you have a six figure business or a multi six figure business, you're sort of like stuck and you have to get to seven figures. Mm. And it's like, do you really? Because if you're working with a few people and have a six figure business, which I hate those terms too. It's like, that's still pretty good. And it's what like people would like kill for. Exactly. And not just that, but following someone else's definition of success means that you have no intention or vision for yourself. And when you really sit down and think, Like, for example, I was at a blogging retreat last year and I met a woman there whose business far exceeds mine and every available metric that we could use to measure. But she basically said she's on her computer 14 hours a day. Her husband has to tear her away to make sure she eats enough food and that she just bought her first luxury car as like um, 
a gift to herself and she never drives it because she's always working. And I just realized in that moment, at first I felt like I really wanted to follow in her footsteps because of all the success it looks like she has on the outside. But then I realized I would be miserable if that were my business in my life. Like, it's just not for me. I don't want that for myself at all. And so defining my version of success and what I want my day-to-day to look like and letting that inform my decisions for my business, it's so much more effective than getting lost on someone else's definition of success. And, and did you have to almost go through that of like defining your success by someone else first? And- oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's all like the dumb vanity metrics. So what did that look like? Six figure business or even like uh, the four hour work week. Uh, I don't want to only work four hours a week. <laughs> like I don't, I enjoy my work. Like there has to be a balance for me of not working so much that you're totally burnt out, but also working enough that I feel stimulated and like energized and creative. And when I am working in that way, it doesn't feel necessarily like work, but yeah, I think it's it's really about tuning into what resonates with you and honoring like that little voice inside of you that I think a lot of us learn to quiet really in the sake of building a seven-figure empire or striving for a TV show or a book deal or whatever these metrics are that like your parents might think look successful or your friends or your family or your spouse or your kids or whatever it is like but would that actually make you happy if you really think about it? Yeah, and I love what you said about like still having the creative expression because sometimes you like lose that. Yeah, and, actually, I, and that's something yeah. I learned actually recently. Um, I was getting a couple months ago, I was feeling really burnt out. And the, re- the way I registered that I was starting to get to that point, I wasn't fully burned out yet, but I could feel it happening because I wasn't excited about the creative part of my business anymore. Like I didn't feel like trying to test new recipes. I wasn't having new ideas. And I realized it was because I wasn't giving myself enough white space to allow that to happen organically. I was trying to force it to happen and nothing, no good ideas ever come when you sit down and try to force them out. (laughs) So sometimes you just have to like give yourself a little white space and create a freedom to explore and, and bring some fun back into it. Yeah. And I think that's actually a good transition point too. So I think a lot of people nowadays want sort of what you've created, which is they want to have this Instagram following and and there's all this like glamour attached to, right? Like being Mm -hmm. an influencer. Can you talk about like kind of like your journey and also like what that looks like day to day? Because I think a lot of people have this vision of what it is and it isn't. Yeah. First of all, I will meet people who aren't necessarily familiar with this world and they'll find me on Instagram and they're like, Oh my God, you have so many followers or whatever. And I, right now I'm at 250,000 Instagram followers. That could be a lot or a little depending on who you're talking to, but people will be like, you must be a millionaire. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Just because you have a lot of followers doesn't mean you can make money. Like you, there's so many different ways that you could make money. And a lot of people with a lot of Instagram followers aren't necessarily making a lot of money. But it's funny because the metrics that actually matter are usually the ones that aren't super visible, which is so confusing to people who aren't in our industry and who are in our industry. Like your email list, for example, you could have a huge email list and a small Instagram following and make more money than someone with a big Instagram following. And so it gets really overwhelming when there's, it's such a new industry and there's so much information out there about it and a lot of misinformation to understand what actually works and doesn't work. So when I first started, there was no Instagram, 
Pinterest, if it did exist, it was invite only. Like it was a totally different landscape. So over the past 10 and a half, almost 11 years, it's only been about keeping up with what's changed and being flexible and nimble and being willing to evolve your strategy as things outside of your control change. And they will like the Instagram algorithm or Google algorithm, it's constantly evolving. I think at the end of the day, if you have solid value that you're offering and an honest connection with your audience, like that's all that matters. All the other stuff doesn't really make a difference. Talk about the the connection piece, because I think that's important. And everyone says that you should have an honest connection with your audience. But if you're like a creator and you sit down to do it, you're like, okay, how do I do that? Yeah. So what does that look like? So for me, I've learned a few things. I've learned that if I'm not feeling excited and happy and inspired to share something, it's not worth sharing. If I feel like I have to get on Instagram stories to talk about something today, or I need to think of a new recipe to publish next week, that is not going to be helpful or valuable to anyone because it's forced and it's not an honest. It's not coming from a place where I'm excited. And even if people can't sense that consciously, they can sense something. And if you do that for long enough where you feel like you're forcing it or squeezing it into place, it's just not going to get you the results that you're looking for. And not just that, but it's difficult. It can be a difficult line to toe between doing what you want to do and what lights you up and what's exciting versus what performs well and what people want from you. And I think if you can find that balance, then you're going to be golden, but it changes every day and you kind of just have to be willing to work with it. Yeah, that's such a hard balance to maintain, right? Like, how do you do that? So I will admit that for a couple years there, I got lost in wanting to do whatever was going to get results. So right now, that would be like quick, easy things like doing a bunch of keto recipes or instant pot or like whatever the latest, greatest thing is that people are jumping on right now. And it's funny because I actually realized that doing the exact opposite resonated more with me and my audience than jumping on like the quick kind of money grab uh, tactics. So I actually published a blog post and an IGTV video a few weeks ago about why I hate baking substitutions and why you won't see gluten-free, keto, vegan, low carb, all that. Like you, you just won't see that on my site. I refuse to do it because I don't believe in it. It doesn't excite me. And of course I got some crazy people who were like up in arms about it. But the majority of people were so excited to raise their hand and say, I'm, I agree. I'm on the same page. Thank you for saying this and coming to my defense against the people who were <laughs> criticizing me, which like for me, I had never had that kind of response to something before because I don't post very many controversial subjects. So I kind of realized that the things that I complain to my friends about in private Sometimes those conversations need to be made public because you're going to find your true fans and followers and like the people who get you and want to be and whatever it is that you're doing. So that, that's a really fascinating insight, which is like go against what the trend is. Was that, was that easy for you to do that? Or was, was there like, no, I was so scary. <laughs> I was so nervous before I hit the publish button on that post. Like just anything that you do online, you know, that there's always a chance of getting criticism in response, which for me is, a, that's been probably my biggest challenge is knowing that that could happen at any moment and feeling slightly defensive all the time. Cause I'm the type of person who like, I need to win an argument and I will pre-think if someone's going to have an argument about something with me, what my 
argument will be and what I'll say and my points, like that argument could never come to fruition, but at least I know I'm prepared for it. So like from that point of my personality, sometimes it's hard to put yourself out there and say things that there will be another side to, but in the long run, it's like, I don't want really those people anyways in my world online because they're not going to buy what I have to sell. They're not going to make my recipes. They're not going to be excited about what I'm doing. And it's just like kind of a waste. So I want to bring the people in who are excited about what I'm doing and who we align in values with. Yeah. I think a lot of people just sort of like want to stay in the middle because Mm -hmm. they want to be for everyone. What they don't realize is if you're trying to be for everyone, you're for no one. And like, you're not going to have those true fans. Exactly. And I feel like if, so I made it a personal challenge for myself and I've ended up exceeding it because now I get kind of a high off posting something controversial, but I kind of made it a challenge for myself that every quarter I'll post something that I'm afraid to share, whether it's something more personal or something that's more controversial or something I've never done before. Like if I have a little bit of like, Ooh, like nervous excitement about it, then that means I'm probably on the right path. So what are other examples of those things that you've done and how did those Um, turn out? So after I did the why I hate baking substitutions post, I did another post that was basically like, you know, when someone writes a comment on a recipe that's, so I made your chocolate chip cookies, but I used stevia instead of regular sugar and I use aquafaba instead of actual eggs and they turned out awful. One star. (laughs) Like, those types of comments which drive us bloggers insane like they're so obnoxious because you clearly didn't make the recipe as it was written I thought that that was just something that bloggers complained about to each other in private I published something about those types of comments online and it turns out that your regular blog readers also despise those types of comments because they're not constructive or helpful and they don't add to the conversation at all So I kind of just started to realize, again, like the things that I was thinking privately or complaining about, you know, on text message with my other blogger friends are things that probably a lot more people actually relate to than I ever would have thought. Yeah, that's actually, that's an idea for a podcast I have, which is taking those private conversations and just making those public because I think that's where all the gold is. It really is. And that could be said too about like, anytime you're going to conferences or events, I always get like a thousand times more insights from those little private conversations and chats, hanging out at someone's hotel room after the conference is over, like so much more from the informal conversations than the like workshops or the speaks, the whoever's like speaking, the keynote speaker or whatever, like you get so much more just chatting things out and people are kind of like off their guard and just sharing their thoughts. And experiences. So, so what are, I guess, like maybe examples of stuff that you learned that way that's non-intuitive and that, and that was very helpful? I mean, I've learned everything from like super practical SEO tips where someone is like, oh, this is how I do it. And they whip out their computer for five minutes and show me their exact process to getting, you know, like here's my graphic designer and I'll send her an email and connect you guys or like anything, everything. And it's so much more helpful practically and immediately than getting like a whole workshop's worth of information that you'll probably never put into place anyways. Yeah, I think we, we all have that folder on, on our computer where we have all the <laughs> ebooks and courses that we yep. bought and never looked at because we just never get to them. Exactly. And if you do join like a course or a group or whatever, 
have an accountability person, like have someone that you connect with and you speak with every week or whatever, every other week that you keep each other on track. Like I have an accountability buddy I met through Todd Herman's first course, like even before the mastermind years ago. And we've spoken pretty much every Friday for four or five years now. Like we know the ins and outs of each other's businesses, but we're in different industries. So it's actually really helpful because it gives you someone else's perspective and it shows you how someone else might go about doing things as opposed to only speaking to people in your own industry and like insulating yourself and against creative and innovative ideas. Right. Because if you're just following what everyone in your industry is doing, then you're just becoming like them. Exactly. And I think content creators, bloggers, podcasters, like we all have this awful thing, awful habit of like murdering every great idea because we all jump on it and start doing the same exact thing. Like whether it's optimizing your content for SEO the same way and using the same heading structure or the same format for podcast interviews or lead magnets or whatever it is. Like eventually everyone is doing it that way and it holds no value anymore and it captures no one's attention anymore. Yeah, that was actually, I remember when we started working together, that was one of the most fascinating things for me because I was coming from the world of like business bloggers and you were from the world of food bloggers. And I I think it's a good transition to like talking about working with sponsors and partners. You had really interesting views about working with sponsors. Can you You have really interesting views about working with sponsors. You like blew my mind open. I had only ever worked with sponsors as a food blogger with, with the knowledge of how only other food bloggers work with sponsors. And I maybe like knew a couple of fashion or lifestyle bloggers, but I didn't really know how they were structuring deals or how they were getting sponsorship deals until I met you. And at the time you were more like working. Wait, actually, so before that, can you talk about how the food bloggers did things before? I mean, it was very, um, it was very templated. I felt like every, I still feel this way that everyone was kind of doing the same exact thing. They were offering a sponsored recipe post using the client's product with photos and social media to promote the post. And then sending like a little snapshot of how it did, like the page views and engagement that it got. And then that was the end of it. Like literally nothing else. No phone calls, no follow-up, no relationship building, no negotiating, no structuring larger deals or leveraging for larger deals, no understanding of the, the brand's ROI and what's important to them and what numbers are going to be important to them for the partnership. Like it was kind of like, Oh, I got an email for a campaign. Okay. And they offered me this much money. I'll go ahead and do it. Like, and that's of course, not everyone was doing it that way. I'm sure there are people doing it better and they probably weren't talking about it because they're too busy doing it. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I didn't even really ever think that there could be a better way to do it. I just thought I just need an agent to hire it out for me because I don't want to bother with it anymore because it's like only a portion of my business. Yeah, it was like the the $500 for one Instagram post. World, and it, and it was, it, it's almost like a la carte with how I think a lot of people were structuring it. Like, you, oh, here's a blog post for this much money. Oh, you want to do Instagram too? Okay, that'll cost this much money. And then that's the end of it. Yeah. So, okay. So let's, yeah, let's talk about how kind of like your mindset shifted and how that's evolved for you. You totally opened my mind to building relationships with 
sponsors and brands and PR agents and whoever it is that you're talking to. And looking just as much at the partnership from their perspective as your own. What is their day like? Who are they going to have to report the performance of this partnership to? Where do they have to go to get ideas greenlit and to get budget and money for projects? What's going to be important to the brand? What's going to make them look good to their boss? What are they worried about? Like literally I'd never thought about any of that stuff before. And I wasn't enjoying working with sponsors probably because of that because there was no feeling of a relationship involved. And so once that changed and you, you kind of like guided me through your framework, I came to actually enjoy the partnerships that I was able to build using it and was able to realize that the offers I was getting where that wasn't even possible. Like maybe it was through like a one and done volume scale PR agency where they just want to get 500 influencers to do something and they don't care really about anything else. Um, I I started to ignore those offers because I just knew it was going to feel draining and it wasn't going to lead to any future opportunities. So what was the point? And and so can you share some examples of stories of kind of like how that shift led to different sort of deals and engagements with brands? Just having a solid relationship with one or two people, not only, okay, so like in this industry, you might have a relationship with a PR agent Mm -hmm. who has 10 clients on their, you know, in their agency, that might be the perfect fit for you. And so you work with that one person on one project, you do really good work with them, you get them really good results, you build a strong rapport and relationship. That's 10 potential other clients that you have through that one person and paid opportunities that you might not ever have had had you not gone the extra mile to make that connection with that person. And so I had a person who worked for a PR agency who we established a really great rapport and became pretty much like friends. And I, we enjoyed working with each other more because of that. And when she moved to a different company, she took me with her and now we're working together for the new company that she works for. And I'm still working with the other company before. So like, I don't know. And it's just more fun. Like at the end of the day, I just enjoy having that personal connection with people more than feeling resentment that they're asking me to do something that I don't want to do because we haven't communicated effectively and resentment because I feel like I have a boss now when I'm self-employed and I shouldn't have to feel that way. That's the whole point of it. So it's up. Yeah. And I remember there there was a, I forget which company it was like someone, one of the companies wanted you to be on their board of influencers or something, right? Oh yes. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Can you you talk about that? That other ones? This has happened a few times now where because of the relationship that I've been able to build with a handful of different sponsors, they either want case studies for what we've done to show to their team, or they want my insights and advice. Basically, I've become a consultant on how to work with other influencers in an effective way. And now I'm speaking at an event in March in Chicago on influencer marketing and how how both sides can benefit better from it by communicating more with each other. Yeah, it's such a simple thing. It's like just ask them what they want and no one's doing it. It's kind of crazy. And it's so funny because so few people are doing it that sometimes they don't even have the answers prepared. Like sometimes I'll get on these calls with brands I haven't worked with before about some campaign that they're putting together. And I'll ask, you know, what are your KPIs? Like what, 
what would be a success to you? What kind of numbers are you needing or looking for? And they'll be like, oh, good question. Let me get back to you. And I'm like, oh my God, you don't even know this? Like, yeah. We've never no thought wonder, of that. There's all these articles on Forbes and Business Insider that say like, um, there's all these fake influencers and fake Instagram followings and you know, companies are pulling back from influencer marketing. They're not spending as much. It's not because necessarily it can't work. It's because there's not enough people to figure out how to make it work. And I think that's a, that's a really great insight, if, especially if you're on the side of the creative is you go into these calls or negotiations or engagements and you have this assumption that the brands know what they're doing completely. Yes. And, and you have some stories of conversations you had around those, right? Well, I think, yeah. And I think especially if you're, you're dealing with an agency that has thousands of employees half the time, you kind of just figure that they know what they're doing. They have systems in place. They have resources you couldn't even imagine. And you're just a tiny little blip on their radar, right? Like that's how I think most of us feel. And then when you get on these phone calls and you realize that they don't have answers to basic questions like that, where you, neither of you would know if the campaign was successful by the end of it. Like that's not great. That's not a great place to be in, but you realize, oh, hardly anyone has this figured out. If I can figure out even just a small part of it more than other bloggers or influencers or content creators or Instagrammers, then you'll be miles ahead. And that person will remember you and come back to you every time they have work for you. Yeah. One of my favorite questions now, I think we, we might've talked about this before, is if this goes well, what does success look like? So that if we let's say do a month long campaign, you're going to come back to me and be like, we want to do this for the whole year. Because yes. it gets them thinking long-term. and Yeah, I love that question. And I love you taught me to ask just more plainly open-ended questions when you're on these calls, just to get them talking. And even ask things that maybe you feel uncomfortable asking. You can kind of play dumb a little bit and say like, oh, are you not supposed to share that or something? But like the more you can get them talking, the more info you get. And even just chatting, it gives you an insight into how things work behind their scenes. Like... For example, I was telling you recently that more and more of my clients are wanting to put money behind sponsored content on social media. So like, not only are they paying the content creator to create the content and share it, but they want to turn it into an ad and put money behind it to, to buy eyeballs to see it. And you know, realizing that a lot of these companies have completely siloed departments for ad buying, media buying versus influencer marketing. And that there was no communication or crossover or budgetary crossover between the two. So it wasn't even possible before for something like that to happen. So understanding that sometimes there are frustrating situations that are equally as frustrating for the person you're in contact with, like your connection, your contact, as they are for you. Like it's probably not just that person's fault, but if you can get them excited and inspired by some metrics that are better than anything else they've ever done before then that they can take that to their boss and start making shifts that help the entire industry evolve and improve. It, it, there's something really interesting in what you said, which is I learned this from a friend who's in consulting. So what they do is they'll go to a big consulting firm and, and work with one department and basically use that to start getting other departments. Mm, to buy, so, get them to buy in. Right. So if you're with the branding department and you were the paid media department, you suddenly have like double budgets because you have access mm. to budgets on both sides. That's smart. I think you told me something similar to that once when we were like years ago about getting 
like, well, why not? <laughs> why not get both sides to pay you? <laughs> yeah, it's... But it's so true. And just thinking something else that like you really sparked for me too, was thinking that side of the box, not just in having stronger connections with the brands and the sponsors that you're partnering with, but how can you get creative in what you're actually offering them so that not only does it look more enticing because you're offering something different than everyone else, but it's getting results because it is different. And it's something that actually connects with my audience. For example, I do a monthly baking challenge that gets super high engagement levels. And I started to offer that to sponsors as a total package. And literally the response that I've gotten from the sponsors who have bought the package is like, this is better than anything else we've done this entire year. Like that was something one sponsor said. And she's like, when can we do it again? I'm like, great. (laughs) Let's sign you up. I didn't even have to sell it. She asked me, that was the first thing that ever happened to me. And it was because we had developed a a relationship, but because I had thought outside the box and like kind of went out on a limb and pitched her something that I'm pretty sure she had never gotten pitched before. And it worked out for both of us. That, that's super cool. Like what are other examples of either like things that have worked like that or when you're talking about like the calls, like the open-ended questions that have really helped you figure out what sponsors want? I think like you said, asking open-ended questions, but from a place where you're just trying to understand how their processes work and even just knowing like, okay, so who do you report to and who's in your team and what, you know, what's going on in your schedule this week? Like I'll start a call with someone this time of year. Cause you know, Q4 is a busy time of year and, and be like, Oh, you guys must be slammed with holiday campaigns. What do you got going on? And then just hearing like the stories of what's happening and who's doing what, like it just gives you every conversation you have. If you just ask a couple questions like that, just chat gives you a bigger and bigger picture on what their world looks like and how you could fit into it. Yeah, I think it's it's people just sort of like think like brands are the 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 sort of like they're like money bags. So we're just gonna go like ask them for money. And yeah, it's it's cool to see how sort of you've adapt adapted this too. Because I remember when we first started, you were like, I don't want to do sponsorships. <laughs> I was so done with it. I still have times where I feel that way because it takes work. Like it takes work to get there with someone and it takes time. But more recently, even that the work I put in a year, two years ago in doing this, I'm seeing the results now. So that's given me more excitement and momentum to continue doing it and that it will pay off, but sometimes it just takes a little time. Yeah. What, what are other things, let's say someone's working on sponsorships and partnerships, where are you like kind of like getting inspiration for other ideas and, and things that are working? So anytime someone does something with a sponsor where it piques my interest, because I probably have more blindness to what influencers are doing than your average person, because I'm in the world and I see everything all the time and it gets boring. Anytime someone does something where I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I take that as a note. And I think anytime where I think, okay, the last thing most of your typical consumers, your listeners, your readers, whatever your followers want is more sponsored content. No one's like waking up, getting on Instagram and be like, oh, I can't wait to see what sponsored post so-and-so published today. Like no one thinks that way, right? So thinking about it, like what could I use? What kind of resource or leverage does this sponsor provide to me that I could use to give something that's actually really valuable or exciting or different to my audience? Like for me, my monthly baking challenges, there are winners at the end of it and so there are prizes. Having a sponsor involved gives me the ability to offer way better prizes than what I offer funding it myself. 
So even something small like that and framing it that way, like, thank you so much to our sponsor for making these prizes possible, for making this video possible. I wouldn't have been able to film this video without them, whatever it is, like framing it in a way where you're getting your audience excited about the fact that the sponsor is involved instead of resenting it. Yeah, it's creating that alignment so that it becomes a win for your audience also. Yeah. And of course, like working with brands that you actually are excited about and actually use and believe in, like that, that goes without saying, but remembering that when you go to write the content, because I think a lot of bloggers get caught up in like, oh, I have to say this and I have to disclose and I have to use this hashtag. And, you know, the sponsors are still wanting some of these things. They're still wanting to have some oversight in what you do. But just remembering like, okay, yeah, get that stuff done with. But then remember how exciting it is that you get to work with this big brand that five, 10 years ago, you probably never thought you'd be able to work with. I feel like that was a really important point that you made, which is like making sure you're working with sponsors that you care about. Because I think, for example, like in podcasting, if you're listening to a podcaster do an ad, you can tell, like you can tell completely when they've never used the product. Absolutely. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast that it's like a male host talking about some like feminine product brand. And I'm like, what? (laughs) This just sounds silly. I don't know. Like they could have done that in such a different way. Like, uh, I don't know. I think just having fun with it. If you can just add a little sprinkling of fun or unexpected or something that your audience can get that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise from it, then you're, you're already 10 leagues ahead of what most people are doing. Yeah, Conan's been actually doing this really well on his show. I think it's called Conan Needs a Friend. Oh. Because he just makes his ads really funny. And so he's kind of like being open about he might have not used the product, but he's kind of putting his own spin on it. I think that's that's another thing a lot of people miss is like they think things should be done a certain way and so they don't start experimenting. Yes, Um, exactly, exactly. And that goes back to the whole thing of like, oh, I should do it this way or I have to do it this way start questioning that as a habit, you start to realize it's 99% of the time that's not the case. You don't have to do it that way. And in fact, doing it a different way will get you better results half the time. So what are what are ways you've done things differently than what was expected and it worked? And sometimes it didn't, or times it didn't work. I mean, sometimes it doesn't work just in the fact that the brand might want to do it, but they just can't get the budget for it or they're, they can't convince their... 50 year old boss to get on board with it because it's too different and you just keep trying never know one day maybe someone in charge will be a little bit more creative or open-minded but I think for me the biggest success that I've had has been those monthly baking challenges and actually even thinking to offer them as sponsor packages because they just get so much more engagement than anything else I almost wanted to to hoard it for myself and for my my audience and not open it up to sponsors until I kind of had that perspective. And I think you inspired it of like, no, but working with a sponsor gives you resources that you wouldn't have otherwise. And even you could say like, I'm reinvesting some of what the sponsors provided into offering you guys this exciting thing or this thing, like remembering to almost kind of sell your own content to your audience and the value of it and how much work goes into it. I think just reminds people you know, like this is tough. It's not always easy to produce content consistently for you for free. So sometimes there's a sponsor involved. And when there is, I'm going to make it really awesome for you. Yeah. I think people 
who sort of like are reading or watching missed the amount of work. So you've, and, and you've done the stuff on your blog, but you've also had an incredible experience on the publishing side. So let's talk about that. Yeah. So that was, like I said, at the start, what kind of was a big catalyst for me going full-time with my business was that I got a book deal in 2012. I had a book agent who saw my blog reach out to me and email me. And I was 22 at the time. And I saw this email and I literally thought it was spam. I thought it was not real. I thought it was some sort of phishing scheme. (laughs) So I just deleted it. And then she emailed me again like a week later and I was like, hmm. So I just Googled her name. I was like, oh, it's a real person, like a legitimate book agent. And so from there, she helped me write a proposal. We took it to auction, actually. A few publishing houses bid on it and we took the best offer. And that book came out in 2013. It's all about ice cream sandwiches. It's very specific. What was that experience like of like being 22 and then suddenly you have an agent and... Because you don't know what to do, right? Like you've never... I had no idea, no idea what was happening any step along the way. And like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe my agent could have been somewhat of a better guide or my editor because I was so green. But at the end of the day, I realized that the one fundamental skill you need to have to be a published author of any type of work is marketing and sales. More so than writing, more so than like creativity. It's marketing and sales because you can have the best book that anyone's ever written. But if you don't know how to market it and get it out there and get people aware of it and get people to buy it, then what was the point of any of it? So I naively thought that the publishing house was going to supply an incredible marketing team and strategy. And they assigned me a publicist who got me like radio shows where the audience was like 65 years old. And I don't even know who was still listening to it. It was like, not great opportunities. And I didn't have any clue. I I thought they would handle that side. And some publishing houses and some people get better deals where they have better access to marketing resources. But I came to realize that as the influencer, you have to be, you're your own best marketer. You're your own best advocate. You know your audience best. You know your content best. And people want to hear from you anyways. They don't want some publicist to put you on a bunch of magazines that your audience doesn't even read. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, you are going to be the best person for that job. And that was a big realization for me as a whole, not just for selling a cookbook, but for getting any type of opportunity, any type of growth. Like you have to be your own salesperson and advocate for yourself. And so I've decided to take the plunge again and write another cookbook, but this time I am self-publishing it. I, I had always wanted to do a book on this, idea on this topic and never wanted to work with a publisher because I had that festive experience previously. And all the pieces kind of just fell into place. Like it was the right place, right time. I knew the right people who could make it happen and who had the right resources and connections. And so now I know how important it will be to market and have a plan and a strategy in place. I would say, and I would say that for your regular content too, not even just published works. Like 50% of your energy should be spent creating the content, but then the rest of it should be spent getting it out there. Because what's the point of putting all your work towards creating all this content if no one ever sees it? It's the same for anything you do. So so what does that look like for you on both the strategic side and then day-to-day? So day-to-day is overwhelming (laughs) because 
you're writing a book and then you're also actively marketing it because when you self-publish, you're having to put forth the funds to get it going, the photography, the design, the editing, the printing and shipping and e-commerce and all that stuff, fulfillment, warehousing, all that stuff. It's so easy to figure out these days. Like if I could figure all of that stuff out, your listeners certainly can. Like I had no experience in any of this stuff previously, but with the internet and all these resources nowadays, that part's not that hard. For me, I found the most difficult and challenging side is creating the thing while you're also actively marketing it to get revenue to fund the project. Can you you talk more about that? Like, Yeah. So, you know, to, to publish a book, it's tens of thousands of dollars and it's going to be more or less depending on how long and whatever, all the things with the book for a cookbook, it's probably more expensive because there's so many photos and it needs to be all color, hard copy. Like I wanted it to be just as beautiful as any book at the shelf of a bookstore. So the process of developing all the recipes, photographing all of them, writing all the content, you know, delivering the manuscript, all that kind of stuff. It's a lot of work. It's a full-time job in and of itself. But I didn't want to start doing all that. I didn't want to finish the book and have all this time and resources dedicated to something that I wouldn't sell. I needed to validate the idea. And the only way to do that is to pre-sell. So while I'm kind of working on the book behind the scenes and getting it at least halfway done, I was also pre-selling it to my audience during the holiday baking season when they're most activated and most likely to spend money on their hobby of baking. And it was just like a lot of different mindsets and operations to be working with under all at once. It was overwhelming, but luckily, like it, it seems to have worked out. <laughs> so I was able to sell quite a lot of pre-sale copies over Black Friday and the book itself is coming together. It's probably like 80% done at this point. Like eventually it'll all be worth it because then I'll have something to sell to every new person who comes into my, onto my email list, into my world and having something physical in their hands, I personally believe will be so much more powerful than them buying an ebook or a course or something that they like you said, gets lost in some folder on their computer as opposed to something that sits in a space in their home and has meaning. Yeah, it's kind of like what Seth Godin talks about where like books are almost becoming these like artifacts that people want to just keep like as like beautiful items. And Mm -hmm. so it's either eBooks or that and like the center is kind of like collapsing. Yes, exactly. And for my audience and my niche, like it just makes sense too because people like to gift cookbooks as well. Like it, it just hopefully it'll all work out and it'll all be worthwhile. But just having another revenue stream was really the, the, the driving like factor behind why I even pursued this. It was that coupled with the fact that I got so many requests from my audience to do exactly this. So it just seemed like the perfect opportunity. That could actually be a really interesting idea, which is like all the people who bought so far, give them a set, like a 10% off or whatever to do, give it as a gift for Christmas to their friends. Uh, done it. Been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> I have an upsell on the funnel. Yeah. That's amazing. You said you had a lot of like mindset shifts when in this process. What did those look like? So going back to my first book, it really all revolved around learning how to sell and market myself, which is basically what you're doing when you're selling something you've created felt very uncomfortable for me. Like I had all these negative connotations about selling, like 
feeling like you're, you're taking advantage of someone or you have to be slimy and skeezy and like aggressive. And I kind of slowly started to realize you could do it in your own way, but it really is a totally different skill set. And for so long, I had been creating content for free, putting it out there for free and making money off the ads on my site or working with sponsors. This is completely different where I was now asking my audience to open up their wallet and give me some of their hard-earned money. And that, for whatever reason, was like a huge mental hurdle for me to overcome. It's still something I struggle with. It's still something I feel uncomfortable about when I feel like I have to sell. And so just even this past couple of weeks throughout the holiday like shopping craziness, I caught myself getting stuck in that mental loop of like, oh my God, I need to be on Instagram. I need to be selling and I need to be promoting this. And then I realized, all right, calm down. One Instagram post is not going to make or break this, you know, promotion. But also if I'm coming from that mindset and that emotional set point of feeling frazzled and like frantic and like, please buy my thing no one is going to want to buy it like at all. And so I thought about, I sat down and I took a break from everything for an afternoon. And I thought like, what would be fun for me to do that would excite people about what I'm offering? And just that day I was like, oh, I should show people behind the scenes and like give them a little peek into what they'll get access to if they buy what I was selling to them at the time, which was like this bundle. And so I just did a little screen recording and I, was, I just chatted through it. And like, it felt more in line with me and my personality. And it did so much better than any time I've ever been like, oh my God, I need to sell something and like been all stressed about it. Yeah, it's like you have to be yourself. Exactly. And the second that you stop, people are like, uh uh-uh, not into it. Yeah, people can tell online. One thing I was really impressed when we worked together was like, you did a lot of research. And I think sometimes something that gets lost in social media is like all the numbers and value metrics is like the stories of the people. Mm. What are some of your like favorite stories that you've gotten from maybe like your readers or or people who follow you about kind of like how they're using what you're sharing? I mean, I like every day, it's actually overwhelming sometimes to get so many messages and comments and emails, but it's the best part of what I do. Like, especially during right now, like when people send me a photo of their Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's table, and they've included my recipes as a part of their celebration with their like closest friends and family members. To me, it's such an honor that they trust me enough to make one of my recipes for such a special occasion and to feel proud enough to take a photo of it and post it online is super cool and tag me in it. And so Whenever that happens, I try to respond, you know, as best as I can when people have taken the time to do that. So I had this woman write me a message just the other day, and she said that her mom posted some rules that she had made for Thanksgiving, and I had commented on it, and that I guess her mom hadn't stopped talking about the fact that I had taken the time to reply. And so this daughter bought my first cookbook for her mom for Christmas and wanted me to sign it but she lived in a different state and I didn't think we could make that work and I wasn't sure what the process for that would be so I was like well give me you know an address that you feel comfortable giving me and I'll write your mom a Christmas card so I did that and like I'm just like I can only imagine it'll make her day too that day which is such a special thing to have you know the ability to do yeah I think people sort of like sometimes lose that 
Yeah. And it forces you to like, look at the numbers. You know, when you log into Google analytics or you look at your email list, it's all numbers. It forces you to realize each of those numbers is a person with family and friends and hopes and wishes and dreams. And like, you don't know what kind of impact you could have on them. And I don't know, just hearing stories like that, it really grounds it in reality and makes you realize like how grateful at least for me, I am for every single person who is like taking the time to subscribe or follow or comments or all those things. Because oftentimes I feel like you can come from a place of scarcity where you're like, it's not enough. I need more. I want more followers. I want more revenue. I want more people emailing me. I want more comments. That person has this many people. Why don't I have that many people? You're not going to get there by having that kind of mindset. Like I think the best way to grow is to be grateful for what you do have and like give them as much love and attention as you possibly can. Yeah, right. Because like you said, like it's it's always a a person on on the other side. You know, it also goes both ways. Like, do you get a lot of like negative comments from people, and, and sort of like how do you handle that? Like, people who don't realize there's a person on the other end doing all yeah, this. Yeah, I when I used to do YouTube more, that was where I got like the craziest, awful, scary, <laughs> nasty comments from people, and you just kind of start to laugh at it at some point. Like at first, you're like so horrified by it but then you eventually just develop a sense of humor that that that's such a ridiculous person that exists to like get on their computer and type that to someone but at this point I think the corner of the internet that I've generated is a really happy joyful place I don't get that much spiteful or hateful comments I'll maybe get criticism or someone will want something that I just don't do and they'll get upset like that I won't make a recipe keto or something like that but at the end of the day I'm like well there's so many other people in the world who are doing what you're asking for like go hang out with them I'm sure they'd much better appreciate you than I can at this point such an interesting thing is like why aren't you making the recipe keto it's it's I remember Seth posted about this where someone came to him and was like Seth you're writing too many blog posts. I can't keep up with them. So can you write less? And it's like, <laughs> why do you want him to write less if he can't keep up? Does, does this like, so, so you do a lot of stuff on, on social media and Instagram and you've kind of like seen my bet on this, at least before where I just, it's completely off all of it. <laughs> how do you, how do you manage that? And, and, and does it get overwhelming? Yeah. So my assistant helps a lot. So she manages my Pinterest. I basically don't get on Pinterest anymore and I don't really do much with my Facebook page. I have someone now who does Facebook ads and then she does the Facebook page and then also is an administrator for my Facebook group and like approves or denies people access. And she will reply to questions that she can answer. And then write up all the questions that I, I need a personal response to give. And then for Instagram, we use later. Uh, we've also used tailwind. Like there's a ton of tools that you can use to upload posts and schedule them out. So a lot of them will now auto schedule or auto publish on Instagram, but I prefer to have a manual notification where it reminds you to publish. The post is already locked and loaded. It's ready to go. You just hit publish. So that way I'm online on Instagram for the first five or 10 minutes that a post goes live and I can reply to comments and questions right away. I think at least for me, that seems to give my content like an uptick in the algorithm if there's an instant engagement with it. And then just like have fun with it. Like with everything else, if you are feeling drained by it, then it's probably not going to grow anyways. And what's the point? Like why try to grow something that completely drains you? 
like with you and create, trying to create a bunch of content, like why do something that you don't even like doing so that you only have to do more of it? <laughs> you yeah. know, if it's successful, you only have to do it more. I remember there was a period where my Instagram was just like completely blank and people would come and be like, why aren't you posting? I'm like, I just don't want to. And um, like, there's so many people who are succeeding without Instagram. You just don't know about them because they're not publishing about their success on Instagram. Right. Let's say there's like other creators this thing and they're maybe like, they've been doing it for like one to two or three years and, and they feel like they're at a plateau. Mm. What are other things you would share with them that were kind of like, you didn't expect to learn and it was kind of like non-intuitive and surprising in the last few years? Yeah, it's exactly that. Like when you feel like you're at a plateau, do something surprising to yourself and for your audience. I think, first of all, staying committed and consistent to what you're doing for a long period of time is required. Like you can't expect instant results and any overnight success stories were likely not overnight. There's likely a lot of work behind the scenes that went into it that you didn't see or weren't you know privy to. So staying consistent with what you're doing until you kind of get the formula right and you're getting engagement and people are sending you, you know, happy stories in response to whatever it is you're putting out there. But at some point you will hit a plateau doing the same thing for so long. So whenever you feel like you're bored with yourself or everyone in your niche is doing the same thing, everyone's Instagram posts look exactly the same, everyone's Facebook groups, everyone's doing exactly the same. Like at that point that you can take that opportunity to kind of go against the tide and do something totally different and post something like completely out of the norm like my why I hate baking substitutions. Like I basically said what everyone was too afraid to say and it worked out for me. Like I might not work out for you every time, but if you're hitting a plateau, it's probably because you're bored with your own content and your own strategy. Yeah. And and then that's part of it is like, sometimes it might not work out. Yeah. It's all a big experiment. Like if it doesn't work out, who cares? I just have more data to go forward with. And no one's paying that much attention to what you're doing anyways. Like if you do something, you have a launch and it doesn't work out, you don't get the big numbers that you were hoping for. Like no one cares. You know, you just take what you learn and move forward. Yeah, they're really not. Second last question. What's your favorite part about what you get to do? My favorite part selfishly is probably that I get to just do whatever I want all the time every day. Like I, if I don't feel like doing something 99% of the time, I don't have to do it. Like I have freedom and flexibility. I can take time away when I need to. I can travel. I can structure my days in ways that feel good. And I'm not having to operate under someone else's guidelines or ideas. And when I have an idea, I can run with it and I can make it happen. Like there's nothing more satisfying than having an idea and then getting people to buy into it and then seeing it come to fruition. Yeah, that's such a gift. Actually, so so when you are experimenting with all of these ideas and, and baking all of these different things, and I think I've asked you before, what happens with all of the food that you're baking? <laughs> this is a number one question I get asked. Like literally everyone <laughs> asks me this question. So a lot of times things don't turn out the first time and it gets tossed in the garbage. Like if I'm experimenting with a new recipe, like I'm starting sometimes from zero and I wouldn't even feed it to my dog. Like sometimes things just fail miserably. And then other times when things turn out pretty good, I'll freeze them or I'll give them away. Like I'll take them to the police station or to a friend's house or to a party or whatever. But I always say like, whenever I feel guilty about wasting food as I'm, I'm developing recipes, is it's better for me to waste food than for someone in my audience to waste food because the recipe wasn't perfect by the time they got to it. Yeah. I think, I think that's probably part of what you're doing that people don't see is like just the 
amount of experimentation and, and things that, like it's not just you come up with it and it's done it's, it's a lot no, of experimentation never. <laughs> I just had a recipe that was so frustrating to get right and I was trying to document it behind the scenes but honestly sometimes even doing that takes me out of the moment and I get distracted and then I mess up again or like I don't think as clearly as when I'm just focused on the one thing so sometimes I think you try to squeeze the most out of something like sharing all all the things all the time but with creative work, I think you have to give yourself the ability to just be in it and just do the thing. Yep. And last question. So if you're listening and you don't want to keep experimenting with recipes, where can people find out about you? And, <laughs> and also what's next for you? So you can find me at handlethaheat.com. That's like my mothership. That's where all the recipes and content is. And then I'm also most active on Instagram. So that's just at handlethaheat. So I'm working on my cookbook, which is available for pre-order now, and it'll be out August 2020, around that time. And then, yeah, I'm just, I have, um, look for something fun. If you, I don't know when your audience will be listening to this, but I'm, I'm doing a little sassy thing on January 1st. I'm publishing an anti-New Year's resolution recipe <laughs> that's like okay. super indulgent and like, the opposite of what I'm sure everyone's going to be publishing, you know, the first few weeks of January. So I'm just like kind of having fun with that right now. That's awesome. Yeah. This, this should be out next week. So if you're listening, go get the cookbook and it makes a great Christmas gift. Yes. And then follow the anti-indulgent recipe <laughs> on Jan 1st. <laughs> cool. Tessa, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. All right. Bye everyone. Hey, it's Sachet again. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, make sure you thank our guests and let them know what you thought. There's easy links to all of their social media, Twitter, Instagram, everything else in the show notes. Secondly, make sure you head on over to creators.show to get new episodes, exclusive guides, partner deals, and additional bonuses. See you next week.